The scripture reading for today comes from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated, and good morning, and welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are starting a new sermon series today called Acts, the World Turned Upside Down. In uh, Acts 17, verses 6 through 7, a mob so angered by Christians coming to town say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's how they turned the world upside down. They said that Caesar isn't the true king, Jesus is. And that message that Jesus is king, it's been declared by the church ever since, and it's been turning the world upside down ever since. Jesus has used his church to turn the world upside down, the same church that you belong to. How might Jesus continue to use his church to turn the world upside down today? How might he use this church? Well, I hope that by studying Acts and the early church, we may begin to see what exactly the church is for and how Jesus might intend to use us today. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts really uh, goes together with the book of Luke. Uh, For one, they're both written to the same person. They're written by the same person to the same person, Theophilus, who was most likely a real person. Uh, But his, his name, Theophilus, means friend or beloved of God. And so it's not really too much of a stretch to say that these books were also written for you. If if you're a Christian, then you're a friend or beloved of God, and so Acts is for you. But the original Theophilus, uh, he seemed to have some doubts also. Or at the very least, he needed some reassurance. Uh, he, He was struggling to fully believe, perhaps. And so Luke begins the Gospel of Luke by saying this, 
It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so it's fair to say that Acts also was written to continue to give Theophilus certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so if you doubt a little bit or need reassurance sometimes, you know, did Jesus really do these things, teach these things? Could God really use me? Could God really use my church? If you need reassurance, if you have some doubts sometimes, then Acts also is for you. Now, Acts is short for its full name, the Acts of who? The Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, which isn't inaccurate. Uh, We're going to read many Acts of the Apostles in the book, but some have said that actually maybe a better name for the book of Acts would be the Acts of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In the very first verse of our passage, the very first verse of the entire book, Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication being, of course, that in this second book, Acts, Luke is going to deal with all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Which is an interesting thing for him to say because, as we read in verse 9 of our passage, Jesus leaves very early on in the book of Acts. Verse 9 says, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So how can Acts be about what Jesus continued to do and teach if Jesus leaves right away? Well, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to empower the church. That's how he continued to do things and teach things. And so these first two weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This week, we're going to look at Jesus lifted up. Next week, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit sent down, which are crucial foundations to the rest of the book. Uh, Jesus ascending up to heaven and the Holy Spirit descending down from heaven upon the church. And so today we'll begin with Jesus lifted up, and as we uh, dive into this, we'll have three points. Uh, The first will be the resurrection, second will be the commission, third will be the ascension. And so let's begin with our first point, the resurrection. If you uh, have ever read any books on the topic of marriage or family relationships or gone through any marriage and family counseling yourself, you know that one of the biggest issues that arises in relationships is expectations, unmet expectations especially. They often flow from uncommunicated expectations or sometimes from presumptuous expectations. And what can happen is one spouse has certain expectations of another spouse, and then those expectations don't get met, and so a conflict starts, you know. Let's say, hypothetically, one spouse expects that the towel in the bathroom will only be used to dry hands, but the other spouse, again, hypothetically, he likes to use the towel in the bathroom to wipe his mouth after he brushes his teeth. That could lead to, you know, three years and six months of hypothetical conflict, all stemming from, let's be honest here, pretty presumptuous expectations. Very early on in the book of Acts, we read about expectations that Jesus' followers had on him when he resurrected, expectations that were going to go unmet. 
The Gospel of Luke, uh, book one, demonstrated that Jesus taught and did many things. He died, he resurrected, he rose from the dead. He was dead, but then he was alive. And that's how Luke ends. Acts picks it back up. Acts 1-3 reiterates this fact, saying that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus rose from the dead. The apostles saw him alive. Many other people saw him alive. He proved himself. He resurrected. Everyone was devastated when he died, but renewed when they saw him alive. But with this renewal, with this excitement of seeing the resurrected Christ, there were also some expectations that people had, presumptuous expectations, expectations that were going to go unmet once Jesus ascended, expectations that Jesus was going to have to correct. One example of this, if we consider the end of the Gospel of John, in John 20, Mary Magdalene uh, is standing outside of Jesus' tomb, and it's empty, and she's weeping, but suddenly Jesus appears to her, and she realizes that he has risen from the dead, and she turns and she hugs him. But listen to what Jesus says to her. This is John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Kind of an interesting response from Jesus, right? You know, Mary Magdalene is so happy to see that Jesus is resurrected, and she's joyfully hugging him, but what's his response? Don't cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to my Father. And so starting with this very first person to see him risen from the grave, Jesus is correcting expectations. Yes, I've risen from the grave. It's a joyous miracle, but don't be confused about what's going to happen now. You might think this means I'm sticking around forever, but I'm not. Don't cling to me. I'm going to ascend soon. Consider the expectations of Jesus' followers in our passage. Verses 6 and 7, so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So his followers are like, this is great. Jesus, you've risen from the dead. You've defeated death. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on this verse, uh, he says, there are as many errors in this question as words. Gotta love John Calvin. It's probably an exaggeration, but it touches on something important. Jesus' followers see that he has resurrected, and they have some erroneous expectations. They think that Jesus' resurrection means something for them nationalistically or politically and immediately. They see Jesus has resurrected, and they can really only think selfishly about themselves, about their nation, Israel. But Jesus is not going to meet their expectations. He's going to turn their world upside down. But before we get to that, let's pause and take a look at ourselves. How are we like Jesus' followers in this passage? You know, have you ever had expectations of Jesus that went unmet? I mean, you know, to cut to the chase, if you have an expectation of Jesus and he doesn't meet it, which one of you do you think is mistaken? You or Jesus, and yet we all likely do have expectations of Jesus that have gone on unmet. And so what have they been for you? What 
What have been your unmet expectations of Jesus? What do those unmet expectations or erroneous expectations tell you about yourself, tell you about how you view Christ? You know, maybe the lack of influence that Christianity has in our country right now is an unmet expectation you have of Jesus. You know, maybe you grew up in decades past when Christianity seemed to have more influence, when churches were everywhere, they were full on Sundays, when Christians weren't pushed to the margins of society. But now, we're definitely in the minority. We've lost influence in our country. Is the state of Christianity today maybe an unmet expectation for you? Or maybe an unmet expectation of Jesus is how life is going for you right now. You know, after all, he is sovereign over your entire life. Is, is an unmet expectation of yours how your life is going right now? You know, maybe, maybe you expected to have a better job than you do right now. Maybe you expected to have more financial security than you do right now. Maybe you expected to be married by now, to have kids by now, to actually like your spouse and kids by now. What expectations of your life has Jesus not met? Maybe he never promised what you were expecting, at least not on this side of heaven. Jesus' resurrection had many significant and profound implications, but many of Jesus' earliest followers had mistaken expectations of what those implications would be. You know, Jesus' resurrection did not mean that he was sticking around. In fact, he had said earlier that he wasn't going to stick around. They just forgot. His resurrection also did not mean the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, at least not politically, nationally, or immediately. Maybe in some sort of spiritual sense, you can say the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored, but not ethnic Israel. And you know, quite frankly, the expectations that the followers of Jesus had in the first century weren't big enough. Jesus was going to do a lot more than just restore an earthly kingdom. He was going to make the whole earth his kingdom. He was going to turn the world upside down. But his plan for doing so was leaving his followers and leaving his church, but leaving them with a task. So that takes us to our second point, the commission. You know, now that our daughter has become much more mobile, She likes to get into drawers and cabinets that aren't safe for her to get into. And so we've had to install these little locks on some of our cabinets. Um, But they need to work in such a way that Holly and I can still get into the cabinets when we need to, but our daughter can't. And so what we have found are these magnetic cabinet locks by a company called Skyla Homes, and they work great. You know, each lock has two pieces. One connects to the inside of the cabinet door. The other attaches somewhere inside the cabinet. And then when the cabinet is closed, the two pieces lock together. But there's a magnet that you can put on the front side of the cabinet door that unlocks it so that we can still open the doors, but our daughter can't. And it it comes with this fancy installation apparatus, which makes installing it a cinch. There's also nothing visible from outside the cabinet, so it's very clean, very aesthetically pleasing. And we put a little magnet on the dishwasher or put on the mirror in our bathroom, so it's easily accessible at all times. Magnetic cabinet locks by a company called Skyla Homes. Now, what do these magnetic cabinet locks by Skyla Homes have to do with the sermon? absolutely nothing. We had a problem. The locks solved it. 
but the locks aren't the point. I'm just bearing witness to you about these locks. What I'm doing is my point. We're all used to bearing witness about things that have made our life better or made our life easier, like magnetic cabinet locks by Skyla Holmes. And we bear witness to these things all the time. We expect people to bear witness to us about these sorts of things as well, too. So it should come as no surprise in our passage that Jesus instructs his followers to do the same sort of thing, to bear witness, but about him and how he's helped them and how he maybe could help others too, to say the least, to bear witness to him. As I mentioned in the previous point, Jesus' followers asked him if he was now going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And he pulls a fast one on them and says in verses 7 and 8, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, this is essentially a version of the Great Commission. And normally people refer to Matthew 28 when they talk about the Great Commission. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. But it's the same sort of commission going on here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Interestingly, that's actually the outline of the entire book of Acts. Chapters 2 through 7 take place in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 take place in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through 28 are the end of the earth, at least the beginning of leaving their region to reach the end of the earth. And so Jesus is giving his followers a commission here. And what he tells them and what he tells us uh, shows us three things. The first is that it's not going to be fulfilled right away. His earliest followers want to know if the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored now. And Jesus' response kind of sidesteps the premise of their question, but what he says to them is, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And of course, we know that now, 2,000 years later, we we know that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel uh, didn't happen immediately. Uh, We know it's going to take, in a spiritual sense, at least 2,000 plus years because it hasn't happened yet. But to those first followers, I'm sure there was a hope and an expectation that whatever was going to happen, whatever was going to be restored would happen then. But if not then, then soon. But Jesus tells them, you won't know when. It'll be on the Father's time, and no one else will know. It's not going to be fulfilled immediately. Second, the second thing that Jesus shows them is that they're going to play a part in the coming kingdom, in the restoration They have a role to play. They ask Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus responds, no, I'm not going to restore the kingdom at this time, but you are going to be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The kingdom is going to come eventually, but through you. With my help, but through you. And so they're going to do the work. They won't be doing it on their own. They'll have the Holy Spirit's help. And just like in Matthew's account, Jesus promises to be with them. Uh, And so Acts here also clarifies that. He'll be with them via the Holy Spirit. But it won't be Jesus physically present. It will be Jesus spiritually present, which is still really being present. 
but it will be his spiritual presence, the Holy Spirit that empowers them for this commission. They'll, they'll be his witnesses, but they'll do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. But they should expect to play a part in fulfilling this commission. And then third, Jesus shows them that it's going to be way bigger than national Israel. The, the question that they ask about restoring the kingdom of Israel is actually quite a small vision. One nation, one people group, and that's too small. Jesus tells them that he's not going to restore the kingdom of Israel, but he has his sights set on more than national Israel. He tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then after Jerusalem, they're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then after that, they're going to go to the end of the earth. The whole world is Jesus's target, and that's the commission he gives them. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And it's a commission as I've said many times before, that you have benefited from. You know, I hope you never lose the wonder of that reality. You live at the end of the earth. When Jesus gave this commission 2,000 years ago, his followers had no idea that North America even existed. They probably thought the earth was flat. We're 7,500 miles away from where they were. But over centuries and centuries, followers of Jesus have continued to be his witnesses. They left Jerusalem. They left Judea and Samaria. They went to the end of the earth, and eventually you heard about Jesus. You believe because Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, did what Jesus asked. They were his witnesses. And that same Holy Spirit dwells within you, empowers you. And so the question is, Will you do what Jesus has asked? Will you continue to be his witnesses to the next generation, to your family, to your neighbors, to your colleagues, to your city, to your country, to other countries? Will you be his witnesses? And, you know, we won't all have the same level of involvement in the specific work, you know, but we all can support the overall work of bearing witness. We can think corporately about this. You know, when you give money, you play a part in bearing witness. Or when you care for children so that your spouse can work more directly or someone else can work more directly, you play a part in bearing witness. But even if God hasn't called you to be on the front lines of missions or outreach or evangelism, at the very least, you ought to be able to bear witness to what Jesus has done for you, right? Where would you be without Jesus? What work has he done in you? What difference has Jesus' grace made in your life? Surely you can bear witness about that. Surely you can tell your non-believing friends about that, right? What has Jesus done for you? Maybe you need to bear witness first to yourself. What has Jesus done for me? Where would I be without him? Jesus has called us to be his witnesses, and he's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us for the task. And so we have everything we need. The question is only, will we do it? Now, after Jesus gave his followers this commission, he left. Verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Why did he do that? Where did Jesus go? That takes us to our final point, the ascension. Imagine that you were working on a campaign for someone running for president. 
They're not currently president, but they would like to be president, and presumably you would like for them to be president too. That's why you're working on their campaign. And so your job might be to uh, convince other people to vote for your candidates, you know, first in the primaries and then in the general election. You might work to prep your candidate for debates so that they can be successful. You might craft commercials and ads that speak to people. You might help develop a policy platform that persuades people that your candidate understands what the country needs today. You might also have to do some kind of slimy work, maybe some negative campaigning against opponents or leaks to the press that ruin the reputation of your opponents. Whatever it takes to, endure that you, and to ensure that your candidate will win enough votes in the election to become president, to ascend to the throne, so to speak. In our passage, we read that Jesus has already ascended to the throne. He's not someone that we're trying to get there, like we work as his campaign staff or something. He already is there. He's already ascended. He is on the throne right now. And so our commission isn't to get him there. Our commission is to witness to the fact that he already is there. Verses 9 through 11 say, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up for you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I love the response of these two men in white robes. They're like, what are you standing around for? Get to work. But it's understandable that the followers of Jesus didn't know what to do right away. I mean, they just witnessed something that you don't see every day, a cloud taking someone up and out of sight. But they also probably were still in shock that Jesus left them. Why didn't he stick around? Why didn't he help out with the commission that he just left with them? Why did he go? Well, the ascension is often one of the kind of least appreciated and understood aspects of Jesus' work. You know, like we get the crucifixion, we get the resurrection, but what's up with the ascension? We often don't think about the ascension that much, which is interesting, though, because we actually live in the age of the ascension. Jesus is ascended right now. That's his status right now. And so his ascension has implications for us today as we live and breathe right here, right now. And so what's the big deal about the ascension? Several things. Books have been written on this topic, but I'm going to go through kind of five implications of the ascension. And so first, uh, because Jesus ascended, he is not physically limited to one geographic location on earth. Like, Imagine how complicated and difficult the mission of reaching the end of the earth would be if Jesus had just stuck around physically in Jerusalem for the rest of history. You know, who would have wanted to go to Judea and Samaria, let alone the rest of the world, if Jesus was physically in Jerusalem? You know, everybody would rather stay where Jesus was, right? You know, wherever he was on earth would turn into a Mecca of sorts. And, you know, that's what's happened with other world religions. Islam has a literal Mecca, right? They're all still centered on where they were founded, but not Christianity. Christianity's center has shifted throughout history. You know, it started off in the Middle East, then moved into the Mediterranean, then up into Europe, over to the Americas, and now you kind of say that Asia and Africa are sort of the center of Christianity. 
one major reason that Jesus ascended uh, was so that Christianity would spread, so that it wouldn't be tied directly to one geographic location. Second, and we'll talk about this more next week, uh, but Jesus ascended in order to be present with us via the Holy Spirit, which is better. In John 16, Jesus says to his followers that it's to their advantage that he go away, because if he doesn't go away, then the Holy Spirit won't come to them. But if Jesus does go, then the Holy Spirit can dwell with his followers wherever they go. A little bit of heaven in each and every one of his followers. And so Jesus' ascension means the descension of the Holy Spirit. Third, Jesus' ascension means that we have an advocate in heaven. You know, an advocate, it's like a lawyer, someone who pleads your case, someone who knows the law perfectly and what would satisfy it and puts together a convincing case on behalf of the person they're advocating for. That's what Jesus has done and is doing for you. He's arguing your case before the throne of God above, before the judge, and it's going to work out in your favor because Jesus is the world's best lawyer. He's the best advocate that you could have. And so Jesus ascended to advocate for you. Fourth, the ascension means that humans can go to heaven. You know, how do you know that you won't disintegrate or burn up or melt or explode or be annihilated when you get to heaven? Because Jesus went there first. The resurrected Jesus, fully humid, body and soul, just like we are, just like we will be when we're resurrected, he ascended to heaven. He made it. He's there. And from there, he's calling back and telling us that everything will be okay. You'll be okay when you die. You'll be okay when you resurrect. You'll be okay when you get to heaven because he did it all first and he's going to bring us to himself one day. So Jesus ascended so that you could know for sure you'll be in heaven one day. And then finally, and what I want to close with, Jesus ascended up to heaven and sits at the Father's right hand because it's the place of honor. All honor, all power, and all glory belongs to Jesus, right? Jesus was lifted up because Jesus deserves to be lifted up. And so God lifted up his son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was lifted up because he deserved to be lifted up. Jesus has ascended. And that's a relief to us, guys. You don't have to lift up Jesus. He's already lifted up. You don't have to lift him up. All you have to do is lift your gaze up to him. Look to heaven, set your sights on Jesus, and simply recognize that he is lifted up. Let that reality shape everything you do, you know, in word and in deed. Bear witness to the fact that Jesus has ascended. He's already been lifted up. He's already in heaven. He's already sitting on the throne. You don't have to make that happen. It's already happened. Jesus is already lifted up. He's already in heaven where the King of Kings belongs. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your Son who died, who resurrected, and who ascended up into heaven. Father, we confess all the ways that our gaze doesn't look at heaven. We confess all the fears we have about being Jesus' witnesses here on earth, but we pray, Lord, that those fears would be cast away, our sights would be lifted up to heaven, and we would be Jesus' witnesses here on earth. We need your help with that task, Lord, so may you fill us with the Holy Spirit and prepare us for it.
We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.